Uh, good morning. My name is Bryce Hales, and I am the pastor here. And uh, it's great to see you guys this morning and to have you with us um, this Advent season. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to the book of Ruth? And um, there are Bibles sort of scattered around and uh, on the floor. And if you're following along with me in one of those Bibles, you can find the book of Ruth on page 222. This Advent, we have been looking at um, the first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 introduces the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, by telling us about the, uh, the ancestry of Jesus, the, um, uh, his, his ancestors, his genealogy. And um, there are many notable characters in that uh, genealogy. There are many, um, uh, many people that, depending on uh, you know, how familiar you are with some of the stories, Bible characters, and the Old Testament, there's a lot of people in there that would raise your eyebrow, raise an eyebrow, and in particular, there are five women mentioned there in the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus. And so we've been looking at uh, four of those women um, each week in Advent, and we are looking at the story of Ruth this morning. And so if you would stand with me, I'm going to read not the whole book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth has a whole book, and um, I didn't think it would be a good idea to read four chapters um, this morning, but we're going to read the first and the last part of the book of Ruth, and then I'll try to fill in some of the rest of the story as we go along. So listen as I read Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, took, these two boys, these two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilon died, Chilion died, so that the, women, uh, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her, her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And then they said to her, No, we will return with you back to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore re refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Then they lifted up the voices and, and their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to, your, to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. Now turn the page over to Ruth chapter 4, and we'll read verses 13 to 17. The end of the story. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this story, and we pray that you would help us as we look at it to um, have understanding, to have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your people. Would you fill us with joy as we see the hope of the Redeemer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. We are looking for something. We're looking for comfort. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for um, hope. We're looking for pleasure. We're looking for joy. We're longing for these things, and I think especially Christmas is this season of longing and of joy and of hope, and it feels like these things are almost within our grasp at Christmas time. I have developed this new habit at Christmas. It's kind of my Christmas procrastination technique. I like to go on YouTube and watch these old classic Christmas commercials from uh, years gone by. So many of these Christmas commercials are beautiful. Um, and yet strangely sad. And this week I was watching the, uh, the Coke Christmas commercial from 1977. And it's this uh, commercial, it's, there's a bunch of hippies basically, and they're all holding candles, kind of swaying, and the camera pans back and you see that they're in the shape of a Christmas tree together. And they're singing a song, and this is the song that they sing. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. And then they just sing that a couple more times. And I think, man, that is so close. (laughs) But doesn't it seem to suggest that if we just buy more carbonated soda water that like the world would be at peace? And you know, what was even more sad than the song and the implication of the song was to read the comments. And about a year ago, somebody on there had commented, Uh, They need to bring this commercial back because this is what the world needs now. We long for hope. We long for joy to come into the world. And yet, so often, we don't find it. We're longing for happiness and for joy and for pleasure. But we don't know where to find it. 
And we've made a tragic mistake because one of these things is different than the rest. Joy is different than hope or happiness or comfort or pleasure. Uh, Happiness and comfort and pleasure are great, but only joy really lasts. Only joy really lasts. And we tend to think that, um, uh, you know, we tend to think that if we are good, then we will be happy. That's what Christmas tells us, right? He's making a list and he's checking it twice. You know, he, you bet he's going to find out who's naughty and nice. If you want to be happy on Sunday, on Christmas morning, if you want to be happy on Christmas morning, you better be good, right? For goodness sake. There's this hope that if we are good, if you're good, then you will be happy on Christmas morning. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with comfort. But very often, despite our best efforts, like despite my best efforts, I'm just not that good. Um, Or even when I am good, joy seems to be fleeting. But the promise of the Bible is that Christmas is about not just happiness, but about joy. Christmas is about joy. When Luke tells the story of the birth of Jesus, the angels in the Gospel of Luke say this. They, they arrive and they say, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Christmas is about joy. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, the, um, Surprised by Joy, he writes this. He says, Joy must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with happiness and pleasure. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted true joy, however, would ever, if it were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power and pleasure often is. Joy and happiness, joy and pleasure are two separate things. What would it look like to truly experience joy, not just happiness that is fleeting this Christmas? What would it, what would it look like to experience joy? Well, my hope this morning is to help you experience the joy of Christmas by telling you the story of Ruth. Because um, in the story of Ruth, the great, 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 that's such a grandmother of Jesus, uh, we see a woman whose life was not very comfortable, Certainly, uh, she wasn't always happy. And yet, if you look at the beginning of the story and in the end of the story, there's a complete transformation. At the beginning of the story, it's hopeless. It's, it's irredeemable. It is a tragic situation. You've got these three widows, basically, who are destitute. And yet, at the end, you have Naomi with a baby on her lap. And she's full of joy, and the women of her neighborhood come around and say, Naomi has become happy again. Naomi is full of joy. She's got a baby on her lap, and that baby is the grandfather of David, the great king. Hope comes into a hopeless world. It's a hopeless situation, but the Redeemer enters in and brings joy. So how can we experience joy? Well, joy comes, the joy of Christmas comes um, when we see three things in this passage. Uh, The joy of Christmas comes, first of all, when we leave the idols of Moab. Joy comes when we leave the idols of Moab. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me try to fill in some of this um, story of the book of Ruth. What's happening here? Well, what's happening is that there's no food in Israel. And so a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they leave um, Israel. 
They leave the town of Bethlehem where they're from, and they travel to Moab. Now, the irony here uh, is that Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, and yet there's no food. And they go to the land of Moab with their two sons. Moab was a, uh, a people, a place that was hated by the Israelites. Uh, the Moabites, these people, were the product of an incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and one of his daughters. So Moab, I heard somebody say, like, Moab has, has like an ick factor to it. You know, it's like, oh, that backwoods place. Uh, the people of Israel would never, you know, go, if they go to Moab to find food, it must be a truly, truly desperate situation. And beyond that, the Moabites were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. One of the prominent gods uh, of the Moabites, uh, they, would sa- they would offer child sacrifice um, to, the, you know, to one of these gods. So this was a brutal place. This was, a, this was an ugly place. To go to Moab to get food means you're desperate. And so there they are in Moab, and, and um, Elimelech dies, and she has these two sons, and they marry Moabite women. And, um, and then, you know, the, the two men die, the two, uh, her two sons die. And so there are these three um, widows. There's Naomi, the older woman, and her two daughters-in-law, uh, one of whom is named Orpah. Fun fact, uh, you know who is named after Orpah? Oprah, Oprah that's right. Uh, on her birth certificate, it says Orpah. And uh, she said that people just always got the, o, or the R and the P confused, and eventually Oprah stuck. It's on Wikipedia. You can check it out. <laughs> Where else are you going to get this kind of insight, right? Um, so Orpah and, uh, and Ruth are there with Naomi, and the husbands, the men are all dead, and there's these three widows. And we've talked a little bit about this over this, this season, but... Uh, uh, you know, th- this sounds really, you know, strange and, and wrong to us in many ways, but the plight of a widow in this culture and this society was, was desperate. Um, women couldn't go out and get a job. They were dependent on their husbands or their sons to provide for them. And yet here are these three widows and um, nobody, has, nobody has children. There's no hope. There's no hope. This is a hopeless situation. They're economically destroyed. And Naomi even goes so far as to say, the Lord has raised his hand against me. God is against me. The invisible hand of God has moved against me. And so she's left Israel and she's in Moab and she's been widowed and she has no one to care for her. She's a foreigner in a strange land. What is she going to do? Well, she's heard in the field, she's heard that things have changed in Israel and there's food again. And so she says, I'm going to return to Bethlehem. I'm going to return to my own country. I'm going to return to my own people. And, um, and legally and culturally in this time, the two daughters-in-law would have been sort of obligated to return with her. And so they begin, these three women, on their way back to Bethlehem. And on the road back to Bethlehem, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and says, you know, she knows what it's going to be like for Moabite widows. Nobody's going to want to marry them in Bethlehem in Israel. Um, they're going to be... You know, if, you, if you're an immigrant, you're, le- you're going to uh, immigrating to another country with hope of a better life. But these women are going with the certainty of a worse life. And so Naomi turns and says, go back. You don't have to come with me. And Oprah, Orpah, says, great. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going back home. <clears throat> 
And Ruth says, uh, well, first they kind of have this, like, you know, the thing that people do, like, no, please stay. No, we're going to go. No, please, we really want you to stay. But we, you know, but please get in the car. Yeah, they have this, like, no, please go back. And they say, no, no, we're going to go with you. And then she says again, no, go back. And, and that's when Orpah says, okay, I'm going back. And Naomi, Naomi says, no, or Ruth, sorry, says, no, I'm going to come with you. I'm going to come with you. And uh, Naomi um, insists that she go back and she releases them for her from her duty. And then Ruth's response is beautiful. And she says in verses 16, it says, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. It's this startling statement. I mean, it's really, a, you know, people read this at, at, a, at a wedding oftentimes because it's this overwhelming statement of, of fidelity and allegiance as Ruth um, sort of pledges herself to Naomi. And yet what's going on would be, would be really easy for us to miss in this passage is that Ruth is not simply pledging herself to Naomi, but here on the road back to Bethlehem, Ruth has an encounter with the living God and pledges herself, not just to Naomi, but to Naomi's God, the living and true God. You see, Ruth the Moabite would have, as all people do, uh, served the gods of her culture. Every culture, every people group, even including ours, has gods. And these gods are petty and they are fickle and they always let us down. And here, Ruth... Um, converts. She pledges herself to the God of Naomi, the living and true God, the God of Israel, the God who has made himself known. And we know this, you might think this is a stretch, but she says this, what she says is um, she binds herself to Ruth or to Naomi, and she pledges herself in the name of the covenant God of Israel. She says, may Yahweh do, to, do so to me and more. You know, may, may Yahweh kill me, essentially, if I do not follow through on this promise that I have made. Every culture creates its own gods, and the gods of Moab were petty and they were cruel, and the one true God who has revealed himself in history commands our exclusive allegiance and Ruth meets him here on the road back to Bethlehem. But what I really want you to see is why she was converted. It seems like such a, it would be so easy to overlook this, but what is it on the road back there that Ruth could draw an, you know, a, a line in the sand and say, this is the moment when I met the living and true God. Um, what is it about, what is it that happens there that causes Ruth to make such a sacrifice for Naomi. Uh, I mean, think about Naomi's situation. She has nothing in the world except for these two girls, these two women and her two daughters-in-law. Um, she has no one to care for her. She has no one to keep her company except for these two girls, these two young women. And what does she do? She turns to them and says, go back. She says, go back home. Um, it's the self-sacrificing love of Naomi that converts Ruth. When Ruth sees Naomi, that Naomi's love for her is greater than her love for herself, Ruth wants the God that will produce that sort of love in her. Um, she knows that as a Moabite woman, 
and as a widow, their lives in Israel will be very hard. If they stay in Moab, they might have some hope. To follow Naomi is to walk into a hopeless situation, and so Naomi sets them free. And seeing that kind of self-sacrificial love is what overwhelms Ruth, and she puts her trust in the living and true God. So the question then for us is, is what about you? What about me? What about us? Have you seen self-sacrificing love and action and put your trust in the living and true God? Have you left the gods of Moab behind? I know that's a really strange way to put it, but I think the, the reality of the way that we so often live our lives is this, that we, we put our hopes in these things. And let's just, you know, it's Christmas, so let's put it like this. We put our hopes in this one day and we spend weeks preparing and we spend hundreds or thousands of dollars thinking this is going to be the greatest Christmas ever. Or we want to give our kids the greatest Christmas ever. And then the day comes and by noon we're like, ah, it's just kind of, I remember that as a kid, like every year at like two o'clock on Christmas day, looking around and being like, is this really all I got this year? It never It never pays off, and yet what we never do is, like, we just move on. We never look in the rearview mirror and say these things that we've put our hope in, these things that we thought would satisfy us don't actually ever pay off. A couple weeks ago, I was in a parking lot. I was coming out of lunch. Uh, I was walking to my car, and as I'm walking through the parking lot, I see this guy come around the corner and just sideswipe a parked car. And he had to back up to like get apart from that car and went pulled into a parking spot. And then he got out and he looked at his car and then he went into lunch. Just walked away. And that is, I think, the way that many of us live our lives. There's these things, but we never really look in the rearview mirror. We never really turn around and stop and say, whoa, something has happened here, and I need to deal with it, and I need to apologize, and I need to repent, and we just move on. But Christmas is actually a lot more fun if we don't expect it to bear the weight of all that we are. Or if Christmas is a lot more fun as parents if we don't have the expectation that this is what it means to be a good parent, to give my children, you know, everything. This bears the weight of my love for my children. What will show us the love of God? What will show your kids the love of God? Is it giving your kids the perfect childhood, giving your kids the perfect Christmas? What we see from this passage is the thing that converts Naomi or Ruth, the thing that converts us, is not, you know, the perfect Christmas, but it's experiencing the self-sacrificial love of somebody else on our behalf. Giving your kids the perfect Christmas will never convince them that Jesus was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. But if they grow up seeing you give yourself away for other people because of the love of Jesus they will know that there is a God who came into this world. Secondly, joy. The joy of Christmas comes by knowing your kinsman redeemer. There is so much in this, in this 
four chapter book that I'm trying to squeeze in here, but joy comes from knowing your kinsman redeemer. So Ruth and Naomi are now back in Bethlehem. There are these two widows and they are destitute. They are hopeless. They have, uh, you know, there's nothing that they can do. They have no way to provide for themselves. And so Naomi sends Ruth out into the fields to glean and um, God and his in his you know, wisdom and his um, care for his people has instituted this practice in Israel that says when you plow your fields, when you harvest your fields, you don't go over them a second time. You go over them once and you gather what you gather, but you don't go back and pick up the things that you missed. And you don't plow to the edges and the corners of your field and you leave everything that is left behind for the poor in your midst. Uh, one of the many, many ways in the Old Testament that God makes it clear that he, there's this built-in care for the poor into the economic system of God's people. And so Ruth goes to glean, <coughs> excuse me, and um, she goes to glean, and, and you know, in a day she might have been expected to glean one or two pounds of grain, and she comes home, and it's in ephahs, which you don't know what that means, but she has, she comes back to Naomi, and she has gleaned about 29 pounds of grain, and she comes home uh, to Naomi, and Naomi's jaw must have just, like, hit the ground, like, how did you get that, where did all this food come from? And she begins to tell Naomi that, well, I went this field that I happened upon. Uh, the owner of the field was this kind, generous man, and he, uh, he told his laborers to look out for me. And he told his laborers to leave extra food for me. And, um, and he, was just, he just showed his, his kindness to me. And Naomi says, what was that man's name? And she says his name was Boaz. And then Naomi's jaw must have really hit the floor. She says, Boaz. Boaz is our relative. Boaz is our, he is our kin. He's our family. He, he is our kinsman. He is a relative of my husband, Elimelech. And what that means, which again, this is totally lost on us culturally, but what Naomi is saying to Ruth is Boaz is the one who can redeem us. See, when Naomi and Elimelech had left Bethlehem, they would have sold their land, but God had made a provision in his word that if a relative could be found who would buy back that land, that he could redeem that land on behalf of that dead man's offspring. And so Naomi is overwhelmed because, because Boaz can redeem them. And so Naomi sends Ruth back to Boaz and um, he's sleeping at the threshing floor, which is like the marketplace. And Naomi goes to him at the middle, in the middle of the night and says that she uncovers his feet which may be a euphemism for, you know, what euphemisms are for. And uh, it might not, but, you know, I just thought I'd throw that in there. And um, she uncovers his feet, and Ruth asks Boaz to redeem the land, but she goes even further, and she proposes marriage to Boaz. Um, this is a feisty woman. This is a woman who is not just going to let life happen to her. And what happens is Boaz buys back the land that belonged to Elimelech, to Naomi's husband. And the land goes back to his family. He redeems it. But he's not just doing a property deal here. What he's doing is he is giving hope to Naomi and to Ruth. He is buying them out of poverty. He is buying them out of a life of desperation and destitution where they are simply the victims of their circumstances. 
He buys them out of poverty. Um, I mean, think about this. How many of us would, if we heard, you know, you have a distant cousin who sold his property and he moved to another country and now he's, his widow is back and you have the opportunity to buy back his land and give it to his offspring. Like, who of us would actually do that, right? What would you have to do to do that? Well, you would have to have the means, obviously, right? You'd have to have financially the, the economic resource. You'd have to have the money to buy the land back. Um, but you also, in this system, you have to be a family member. You have to be kin. You have to be a redeemer. But more than that, you have to be willing. You have to be willing. And so they ask Boaz to redeem the land And then Ruth one-ups the situation by also proposing marriage to him. Redeem not just the land, but redeem redeem me. And it's easy to read this as just like a, um, you know, like maybe a sappy love story. But, I I mean, just to get the details, Boaz, it says, is an old man. And we know that Ruth just carried 29 pounds of grain back. So she's maybe not like the sweet, petite little thing that we're envisioning. Um... There's a lot of Old Testament culture that we don't understand here. But in order to redeem the land, Boaz has to have the means, he has to be family, and he has to be willing to do it. And I think that somewhere in there, there is a, an echo of what it means to be human. This is the story of the whole human race. Uh, we are in a desperate situation. We, like Ruth, we, like Naomi find ourselves in a, in, a, in a place where we cannot, uh, we find ourselves in a situation, in a world that is in, seems unredeemable. Uh, we find ourselves living with desires that we cannot satisfy. We find ourselves living with an itch that we cannot scratch. We're hurt and we're angry and we're not really sure why. We have hopes and dreams that we can't fulfill. Or when we do fulfill them, they don't seem to actually satisfy. And we're looking for someone or anyone who will come along and redeem us, who will fulfill us, who will heal us, who will buy us out of this mess. And that's what Christmas is all about. Joy comes into our hopeless world with the birth of a Redeemer. Joy comes at Christmas with the birth of a Redeemer. He is just like us. He's our family. He's our older brother. Jesus is our older brother. He's the one we've been waiting for. But not only uh, is he able, uh, you know, not only is he family, but he is able to redeem us. It says, the Bible says that he was like us in every way and yet without sin. He is able because he is the sinless one. Not only is he able, not only is he kin, but... He is willing. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus went to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus left heaven. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus came <coughs> excuse me, to our earth, took on our flesh. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus comes to redeem not just the land, but to give himself to us, to you, to his church For the joy that was set before him, Jesus calls us not just friends, but he calls us his bride. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endures the cross. Why? Because he's doing it all for you, his his church, his bride, the one he loves. The one he doesn't simply buy back, but marries and calls his beloved. This is the message of Christian. You have a redeemer. 
You have a Redeemer. Do you know him? But thirdly, thirdly, briefly, when the joy of Christmas invades your life, when you have left the gods of Moab and when you know that you have a Redeemer, then the third thing, you can actually begin to experience joy in the midst of this world because you can see the extraordinary, ordinary love of God. You know, uh, Naomi says, the hand of the Lord is against me. But the ironic thing about that statement is that the book of Ruth is this story of the invisible hand of God that is for Naomi, that is for Ruth. This is a story of the extraordinary, ordinary love of God coming into the world. What does that mean? Well, the interesting thing about the book of Ruth is that like, there's nothing extraordinary that happens in Ruth. There's no miracles in Ruth. There's no, uh, you know, there's no dreams. There's no visions. There's no voice from heaven. There's no thunder and lightning. There's no parting of the seas. There's no, um, there's nothing miraculous that happens in the book of Ruth. I mean, there's not even any really extraordinary teaching like this point that you'd be like, wow, I never thought about that before. That changed my life. Um, it's very ordinary. It's very ordinary stuff. It's the story of a few widows who immigrate and a very gracious old man. And yet in the ordinariness of the whole story, what's screaming for our attention is that behind the scenes, there is a God who is at work. God is always at work. When Ruth goes to scavenge food, the text says she happens upon the field of a man named Boaz. What a coincidence. She just rolls up into the one field of the one guy who just out of coincidence happens to be the one man on the planet who could redeem them. Boaz turns out to be Naomi's relative and he's able and he's willing to redeem their land but he goes even further and marries Ruth. What are we supposed to think that that's just, wow, what a, it's really neat to see how that whole story just worked out all on its own, right? No, behind this whole story, is a God who is at work in extraordinarily ordinary ways. Behind the events of history stands the extraordinary love of God. And isn't that the story of Christmas? Isn't that the story of Christmas? What happens uh, in Bethlehem on the first Christmas? What happens in Bethlehem on the first Christmas is that the God who created the universe by speaking comes into the world and yet who notices it? Who sees it? The armies of angels show up, and who do they tell? The first ones they're to tell, hey, God was born. They tell the shepherds, like the garbage men, the men that were always there in society couldn't function, but they smell bad, and nobody really wants to invite them into their homes. Finally, it's happening, and the first people to know are the nobodies. God finally shows up, and where does it happen? Does it happen in... You know, places where our children are born in these hospitals that look like hotel rooms and clean, sterile environment. No, Jesus is born in a barn. There's no doctor. There's no midwife. There's livestock over here. It's cold. It's gross. It's very ordinary. We experience joy in our lives when we are able to see the extraordinary, ordinary love of God that God is always present, that behind the curtain there is a God who moves in extraordinarily ordinary ways. In just a minute, we're going to talk about our Christmas offering. 
And our Christmas offering is a time to bring our impossible prayer requests to God. It's a time to say, God, I need you and I'm afraid to ask. And so I want to encourage you to write that down. But it's also a time to bring our money. I mean, the Christmas offering is about money. Let's not try to pretend like it's not, all right? And I know, um, you know, people in general, some of you perhaps, probably, I mean, surely there's somebody here going, oh, see, here it comes. I showed up at church for Christmas, and they're just after my money. And let me just let you off the hook that nobody's after your money. But um, there's nothing more ordinary than money. I mean, when was the last time you went a day without spending any money? I can hardly spend like a waking hour without buying something, without money leaving my bank account in some way. Money is the most common, ordinary thing. I mean, one of the most common, ordinary things in our lives. And it's so easy for Christians to tell ourselves, well, I've given my life to God. I've given my heart to God. And yet we cannot say that if we aren't bringing our ordinariness to God. Our money, our time, our words, the words that come out of our mouths, our relationships, our children, our neighbors. We live in a culture where we long for the amazing. We long for the -the over-the-top, incredible, stupid, superlative, best, biggest ever thing, right? You can't just like have a normal birthday party for your kids. You got to like rent an elephant or something. (laughs) Or you're not loving your children, right? It's got to be so... And we disdain the ordinary and God asks us to bring our ordinariness, our money and all that we are, our ordinary gifts. We are faced with a daily opportunity to give him our ordinary lives. So we give him our money. We celebrate Christmas by inviting friends and family into our homes, not to show them like the elephant that we rented, but just to have a simple meal, to sing songs, Christmas songs together, to just enjoy the joy of being together in simple ways. It's simple, ordinary stuff. This Advent, we've been looking at the names in the genealogy of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew tells us in in the first chapter of the New Testament. And so I think it's fitting that this is the way that the Bible introduces the birth of Jesus. It doesn't start with once upon a time. The birth of Jesus doesn't start with a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. It starts with a list of people whose names we can't really even pronounce. It starts with the story of women who have been overlooked and ignored and oppressed, and we still live in a time like that, don't we? It starts with the story of women like Ruth and Naomi who lived like, I don't know, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. Who's going to remember your name in 3,000 years, and yet we've just spent 38 minutes talking about this, like some of you might have grandchildren or children named after Ruth, right? Why does anybody remember this woman's name? Here we are talking about them. We'll finish with this. J.R.R. Tolkien was one day uh, walking with a friend of his, an atheist, and uh, these two men were both English professors, 
and uh, they were talking about, uh, they were both lovers of stories, they were both lovers of myths and of legends, and as they talked, Tolkien's friend Jack uh, observed that all cultures tell stories that express our hopes and desires. We all know these stories. For us, you know, we know the Disney fairy tales. We know uh, the stories of a love that overcomes death and is awakened, you know, by, by true love's kiss. Uh, we know the comic book stories, uh, the stories of epic struggles of good versus evil. We know the stories of Star Wars, the, the rebel alliance that overcomes the evil of the empire. We know the stories of Harry Potter of ordinary people who are caught up in this epic struggle against evil and actually end up having an important, crucial part to play. These stories that every culture tells about overcoming death, of finding true love, these myths, these legends, these stories express our deepest hopes and our deepest longings as human beings. And so that day in September, as Tolkien and his friend Jack were walking together, he called him Jack. We call him C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist at the time. And C.S. Lewis expressed this, this great um, love for these myths and yet this, this hopelessness that they bring because they, they leave you wanting something that will never actually be reality. And Tolkien says, yes, that's true, but there's one true myth. There's one true myth. Because think of the story of Christmas. At Christmas, we meet a man who was born and grew up in an obscure village. And as he grows, he discovers that he has these powers that nobody's ever seen before. He has powers to do good. He has the ability to heal sick children. He raises the dead. He feeds the masses. And yet he's misunderstood. And he's betrayed by his closest friend and he's arrested and he's executed and he's buried and while his friends mourn him the rest of the world simply passes him by and begins to move on but that's not the end of the story he is raised to new life and he appears to his followers and he says to his followers I want you to carry on my mission to the ends of the earth and he ascends into heaven where he now reigns and rules over all things. And this is the story that begins not with once upon a time, not with a long, long time ago in a land far, far away, but it begins with the names of people who lived, people of history, people who lived 3,000 and more years ago. It's a story that all of us long to be true. And this one doesn't begin with once upon a time. The extraordinary, ordinary love of God comes into the world to bring us great joy. That's the message of Christmas. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for Ruth. And we thank you for the way that uh, you overcame all obstacles to work to redeem the irredeemable in her life. We thank you for her story and we thank you that it is not just a fairy tale, a story of something you did once a long time ago. 
but that it's what you are doing in the world. It's the story of all that you're doing in the world. It's a story of you moving heaven and earth in extraordinary ways to show up as an ordinary human, to make your love known to us, to heal us, to bring joy into our lives. Would you help us to turn to Jesus, the one who brings us joy this Christmas? We pray in his name. Amen.